0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Mindful Minute. Thank you for tuning in. So if you have been listening to these episodes in order, we have just wrapped up the Building Political Resilience series. And today I am bringing you a conversation, although it was not intended to be related, it does feel like there are threads carried through. This conversation today is with meditation teacher and author, Caverly Morgan. Caverly was such a delight to meet. And it was so fun because I found out she also knows Deborah Eden Toll. Some of you will recognize that name from a previous interview. So I feel like I've got a little circle of meditative teacher, author friends going on right now. That is just delicious. So let me tell you a little bit about Caverly and what we're going to talk about today. Caverly Morgan is a meditation teacher, author, speaker, and nonprofit founder. She's the founder and lead contemplative of Peace in Schools, a nonprofit which created the nation's first for-credit mindfulness class in public high schools. She's also the founder of Presence Collective, a community of cross-cultural contemplatives committed to personal and collective transformation. Caverly blends the original spirit of Zen with a modern non-dual approach. Her practice began in 1995 and included eight years of training in a silent Zen monastery. Caverly is the author of a kids book about mindfulness and a brand new book, The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together. So we talk about this book and really specifically, we dive into this key phrase, realizing freedom together. Caverly offers us a really important point to our meditative practice. She writes, the longer we cling to the notion that there's a separate self who awakens, the more arduous our path will be. We realize freedom together. In this conversation today, we explore what that phrase means, why it is that our practice sometimes feels so isolating when what it's really meant to do is draw us closer together. We talk about how Caverly wrote this book to be a collective communal experience and ways that we can extrapolate our own independent meditation practice into this greater collective societal awakening. This was a really fun, really deep conversation. I so enjoyed it. I feel like I could have spent another hour just chatting, but I wanted to make sure that we saved time for a full meditation practice. And you guys, Caverly leads a 20-minute meditation at the end that you do not want to miss. It's an incredible reflection of the ways that we see ourselves the ways that we interact with the community, with society around us, and the ways that we can create awareness around those self-imposed beliefs. It was a great conversation. It was a great practice, and I am thrilled to bring it to you today. So let's listen in. All right, Kaverly, welcome to the Mindful Minute. Thank you so much for taking some time out to chat today. Meryl, I'm really
1: very, very glad to be here. And thanks for all you're doing to make the world
0: a more mindful place. Oh, thank you. I'm So I always love getting to chat with other mindfulness teachers. It's so much fun to get to be in community in a practice that sometimes doesn't let us be all together. So this is really lovely. I had just spent the last week reading an advanced copy of your brand new book, The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together. And I underlined it, underlined like every other sentence. There was so much I took from this book. Before we dive into what this book is and your vision for uh, for its offering, I'd love for you to tell a little bit about who you are and how you came to meditative practice.
1: Hmm. Thank you, Meryl. You know, in this moment, what's arising about who I am is just someone that has so much passion for the vision of us all being awake in this world, of us all, you know, the tagline of the book is realizing freedom together. So what rises to the surface is actually less about something specific I've done or accomplished and more about what pulls or tugs at my heart. And these days, it's this vision. And, and it has been for some time. So as you know, I, I trained monastically in the Zen tradition. So I lived in a Zen Buddhist monastery for eight years. And then when I came out into the world, one of the first projects that I gave a lot of attention to was a project called Peace in Schools. And so this pull towards realizing freedom together has been uh, has been at me for years and years now. In fact, I would say that's what led me to monastic training in the first place.
0: Mm. There's a sentence that you highlight. I think it's in the introduction, but it's also highlighted on your website. And the sentence specifically is the longer we cling to the notion that there's a separate self who awakens, the more arduous our path will be. We realize freedom together. And again, tagline of the book, we realize freedom together. And when I read that, the thing that arose for me was that feels like something I know in my body. And I don't know that I have ever said those words out loud in a meditation class. I don't know that anybody has ever said those words to me. It has always been self-directed. And I would love to hear a little bit about I don't know if it was a pivot for you. Maybe it wasn't, but I wonder if maybe there was a pivot at some point that caused you to, like, look in this direction that was not self-centered. I'm so interested by this,
1: yeah, thank you. It was a pivot for me. What pulled me into practice was the desire not to suffer anymore. And I saw that that was possible through practice. And it wasn't until I had been practicing for some time that it began to dawn on me that the way I was approaching practice maintained some sense of isolation, even though I was practicing in community. And the isolation, I think, was this distortion that I'm going to end my suffering, that my baggage is my baggage, that I have to get over my stuff in order to be free. And there's a lot in the way and it's mine to work with. And I didn't realize how much the way I was approaching practice was maintaining this sense of I've got this work to do. I'm striving for liberation. I'm on this path. I'm either doing a good job or a bad job.
0: It was all reinforcing me. And I think about in this moment, how many of us meditate with podcasts because y'all are awesome or apps Or we simply self-guide ourselves in our closet at home for five to 10 minutes because that's what we have. And it feels isolated. Mm -hmm. And I read, I was so interested to read this. It never occurred to me. You make a statement in the book about your time in the monastery. And although you were in community, it wasn't a community where you were like getting to know each other's histories and what brought you here and the things you imagined doing in community. That really struck me.
1: Yeah. You know, the community was profound in that what bound us together was a shared love of wanting to end suffering. And in that particular setting, that's all we focused on. I'm able to look back on that and see, I don't think it's a requirement. <laughs> Actually, I know it's not a requirement uh, to have that kind of exclusive focus in order to experience freedom. And yet there was something valuable about practicing in that way, for sure. It gave me what I needed in that moment, um, in that chapter of my life. But. I'm interested in community on different realms now. So I'm interested in what it means to know each other in all of the various ways we know each other, while most importantly, knowing what it is that we ultimately share, meaning most fundamentally share. So these realms of of experience I like to talk about as moving from the more relative plane of existence you know where do you work um how how do what how are you entering this society in terms of your position you know what is your background what is your skin color what is your what are you bringing to the table in terms of your personal conditioning and then this more absolute knowing this knowing of who we are on the deepest level. And then again, what we share on the deepest level.
0: And so as you talk about bringing this community aspect to practice, it's one of the the threads of the book. Maybe it's the thread of the book even is you invite the reader to consider reading in a group, right? You, you bring the practice of reading a book and community together and and contemplative practice together, like these threads are being woven together that are potentially um, solo acts. And you say, well, you could do it that way for sure. You give everybody the option to do that. And you also bring in this option of community in these smaller experiences. And I wonder how reading a book together or meditating together or having a conversation is setting us on a path maybe towards this idea of freedom or liberation.
1: Yeah. I appreciate the way you're framing it because reading a book together is different than experiencing collective practices together, right? Like a friend of mine recently said, Oh, okay. So you're trying to create book clubs. I was like, well, (laughs) Not entirely, right? Like book clubs, I think of as we're getting together. And if you go with like a real stereotype, right? Like a bunch of gals getting together with their knitting and talking about a book they're reading. At least for whatever reason, that's the stereotypical <laughs> image. That might not be really how book clubs are. I have to say, I've never been in a book club. But, but the idea being that you're conversing about what you're reading. So it stays perhaps now there might be people listening saying I'm in a really different book club than that. But from my understanding of book clubs, perhaps folks are staying in the head with the experience, which is not bad or wrong, but it's not what I long to resolve through the inquiry around collective that this book puts forward. This book says what happens if we create community together as we move through this book and that might be you and your partner it might be you and a parent that you're like wow what if we had some shared shared language around this stuff i wonder how that would change our dynamic if they're willing that would be fascinating it might be that you decide you know i'm going to be creating collective experiences um right now i'm in the middle of creating a course with my colleague uh, Rashid Hughes, and it'll be an experience. We actually just yesterday started playing with maybe it'll be six months long. We originally thought it'd be a year long, a chapter a month, but we're we're still in the tweaking phase of this. And if anyone's interested, um, that can be found at my website and uh, caverlymorgan.org. And I'm excited about it because this opportunity for people to join a collective will be an opportunity to be engaged with these practices. You know, every chapter not only has personal practices, but collective practices. So you're having the opportunity to say, okay, we just worked with this tool. Let's say bringing attention to our internal negative self-talk. Now we're going to bring attention to how self-talk manifests regarding collectives, society. And so what's our self-talk About ourselves? What's our other talk? What's happening in terms of realizing freedom together or what's not happening in terms of realizing freedom together based on our lack of capacity to have shared awareness of our collective conditioning? Let's bring attention to that together. So I'm looking forward to all the bumps and the rubs that are going to arise as we explore these matters, But even with bumps and rubs, knowing that it will all be in the name of realizing freedom together.
0: I have so many threads I want to follow from (laughs) what you just said. Let me start by saying the practices in the book that you share struck me so strongly, specifically because... I think very often anybody who's read any sort of meditative book, there's a practice at the end of the chapter, right? And it's like, you read the little guided meditation and you close your eyes and maybe there's a journal prompt at the end and maybe we do them and maybe we don't, but the addition of extrapolating from our, like it's, that's the piece that is so easy to miss in contemplative practice is we sit, we we have this inner experience, and it is easy to then get up and rush into the next moment of our day mm-hmm. and and not carry that forward. And the practices where you ask us to bring this into conversation or to reflect with somebody else, to look at it from a societal lens, it's pulling a practice that could be 10 minutes on a cushion by yourself into the lived experience of your life in this moment. It feels tremendously valuable and important and so skillfully done. I can tell that you have created curriculum in schools like it's so intentional when I read it. Well,
1: thank you for that. I it is very intentional. I've been refining this book has been working at me for years and years so it's mm. really an honor to finally birth it. And I do, I do appreciate that this book answers a question that I hear so many people ask, which is, I feel great in my 10, 20 minutes of meditation and contemplation and nothing else is going on and, and the translating it into my everyday experience gets a lot dicier. Like, I don't, I feel like I'm on autopilot for so much of my life. And I don't, I need really specific how regarding the integration. It's not enough to just say, well, just be present as you go about your day.
0: Yeah. Uh, So listeners, as you're hearing this, it'll be sometime in early December, but this is being recorded the day before the midterm elections in the States, if you're a listener in the States. And I just spent the last three weeks teaching a course on building political resilience. And so we've really been talking and exploring how does our practice support us when the ads are on the TV and the mailers are in the mail and you see the sign go up in your neighbor's yard and you're like, wait, what? You're voting for who? And there's such a sense of again, I think it's isolation, right? Like I, we can't talk about this because it'll be a fight. Yeah. And how do we start to build the skill and the resilience and the courage really to come together as community again? Right.
1: Yeah. How do we come together as community without letting our eye leave what we share, who we truly are, while also simultaneously not ignoring everything happening on that relative plane of experience. So a lot of the book is about knowing how important it is that we can move into the recognition of we are all one while not dismissing or throwing away all the various ways we don't act as though we're one. So we can't pretend I think in the name of what you're talking about and that kind of resiliency, we, we can't access that resiliency if we're pretending as though we're all one is currently just manifesting on our relative plane of existence as if our actions are all just all across the board arising on behalf of that deepest knowing of what I like to talk about is our shared being. The very being that you are is shared by me there those aren't two separate beings so what's it like when you and i in conversation even now hold an awareness of that being being shared it, again it doesn't mean of course we're going to have very different life experiences but to not take our eye off what's shared changes potentially that conversation if you're my neighbor and you vote differently than me
0: you name very clearly in your book that don't let me put words in your mouth. So change this. If I say it wrong, that our meditative practices go hand in hand and cannot be distinct from our, I'm going to call it activism in the world, but our standing up for social justice or for minority communities that have not seen the same levels of privilege that somebody who identifies as white and or any of the other levels of privileges. You you name that really clearly. And it's something that that I also bring forward in a lot of my classes. And it it feels like an important piece of the practice mm-hmm. that this is a piece of of being of I'm losing my words today, of being in a meditative practice, it can't just live inside us and inside the cushion, right?
1: Not if we really want to be free. Mm. So we can have, I I appreciate that Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams talks about a kinder, gentler suffering. So we can have a little bit of relaxation, or we can learn through a mindfulness practice that I have a little bit less reactivity, which is great. So I can, I feel like I can respond now a little more easily rather than react. Most of us enter practice and move through that realm of practice, finding gratitude for it, benefit from it, but not deep satiation for the thirst that ultimately is what pulled us into practice. It's like, uh, it's it's like a a really nice meal when you've been hungry, but it's one meal it doesn't resolve the experience of hunger it doesn't it doesn't ultimately bring us to an experience of what it means to not have a life run by the craving for food mm. it doesn't free us from that now this is a weird i i have to confess i've never used this analogy before and it's a little weird because I'm not, it could be, it could sound like I'm trying to say, like, freedom is when you no longer want to eat. Like, it's just, as I'm saying it, it like, it kind of falls apart as a metaphor, you know, especially given that there are these old Buddhist stories about people wanting to, you know, attain enlightenment. So they stop eating and they can see their spine through their body. Okay. This is just to be super clear, (laughs) not
0: what we're talking about here. I actually love the metaphor. (laughs) If we don't go too far with it, it's right. lovely. And, and, and for me, what I heard in this, it doesn't one delicious meal doesn't resolve the hunger. And I feel that in my body immediately. Mm-hmm. Like, right. I get that with the practice. We get that with the practice, anybody who's meditated, you know, and, and even when you think about our, our meditative practice and one day it's, it is a mate, right. It is so spacious and there's that amazing insight you have at the end where you're like, Oh my God, the practice is just doing all of this goodness for me. And the next day we sit down and it's like, all you can hear is the kids running around upstairs. And you're like, but I didn't send that email. Shoot. I got to go send that email. When is the bell going to ring? It's that same sense of like one day it's amazing. And the next day, maybe it's not right. And we're still working that towards resolving that hunger. Yes,
1: because as long as we think we're the I that is having a good meditation or a bad meditation, or I'm doing the right meditator thing by being able to clear my mind well today versus today my mind is crazy, so that's a reflection on me, we're maintaining this little limited sense of I. So we'll have a nice meal by the end of an experience, but we won't meet that real craving, which is to be free from that distortion, the distortion that you are, that which is striving in your practice
0: to try to have a particular experience. So 20 minutes goes by in the blink of an eye, I could talk all day to you. Let's do this. Let's talk about one of the things I hear come up quite a bit, and I wonder if you do too, is this sense of when I look at the greater world right now, what I feel is hopeless or overwhelmed. Like how can little old me do anything about all of this? And here come teachings that say freedom is realized together. I want to talk a little bit about how we move towards that understanding when we're so deeply in the sense of everything is on fire and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, right? How do we start to make the pivot or turn the head towards this idea of oneness?
1: Well, I appreciate this question a lot because it is at the heart of why I think collective practices as part of this book are so important. You know, this isn't airy-fairy for me. This isn't like lofty kind of new age thinking. I see it in high school classrooms. I see teens who struggle with self-harm and addiction and suicidal ideation and bullying, either being the bully or being the one bullied. And I've had the experience countless times where through creating conscious community, where teens begin to have direct experience of what is shared versus how they're conditioned to see each other, how they're conditioned to behave in relationship to each other allows the entire focus to change. It allows for an experience of belonging that then creates the ground for different action in the world than can manifest if we're coming from an experience of isolation. So I really want to underline, it's not just some kind of like, I, the, even that phrase, we're all one, it gets so, I can like hear it with like new age music in the background, you know, I can, like someone's holding lavender or sage, and then there's like a, you know, like a nice doTERRA oil being pumped in. <laughs> like I can, I got it, I got, and it's important to recognize that yes, we've, we've done that. To something that's actually a very grounded and tangible experience. We experience it every day. We experience that sense of connection that we are conditioned to override. You know, we're conditioned to say, no, that experience isn't safe or isn't okay, or I need to be focusing on getting ahead. I can't surrender to that experience of connection or nourish that or foster that, feed that. I need to be strong, independent, whatever our personal conditioning is, right? Like a lot of this book is about taking personal conditioning and seeing how it relates to collective conditioning. So that might be how I'm conditioned on a personal front. And guess what? That's how my entire family is conditioned. And guess what? Most of the community I grew up in is is up against this, this same conditioning where there's a hunger for belonging, but then the conditioning, the survival strategy to isolate, to see ourselves as independent, and to actually reward a person who focuses on being their own person.
0: Kaverly, will you guide us in a practice? I would be happy to. I would love that. Yeah,
1: be happy to. Thank you. So allow yourselves to close the eyes or gaze down at a 45 degree angle. and for a moment consciously give your attention to all the ways that you've been conditioned to move through the world. Just briefly scanning whatever arises, let it be organic and natural. I'm conditioned to be a people pleaser. I'm conditioned to be independent. conditioned to hide my emotions. Spend just a moment at the beginning of this contemplation, letting whatever is in the file of your personal conditioning just float through your awareness. Just noticing whatever there is to notice. You are not your conditioning. Notice that you can see all of this conditioning from a direct experience of being aware. And that that experience of being aware is a very different experience than that of being identified with this conditioning, thinking that conditioning is you. Or that it's real in the most fundamental sense, that it's fixed, that it's solid. So now, rather than giving your attention to all of that conditioning, Let the attention rest in what's aware of the conditioning. might even say surrender to awareness, release into awareness, rest in awareness. just so we're comfortable moving back and forth from these two very different experiences, consider for a moment some of your collective conditioning. So I might want to pause to consider all the ways that I have absorbed collective conditioning around what it means to be a white woman in this society. Can I see this with the same, right? As mindfulness practitioners, we are, we are trained to see things with neutrality and, and non-judgment. Can I see some of my collective conditioning without judgment or any sense of shame, just noticing? Maybe I get present to a sense of entitlement that I'm conditioned to have in a collective sense. move beyond that field of right and wrong that Rumi talks about, just seeing. I identify as a woman. Perhaps I can see in this moment some of my conditioning around being a woman. might feel separate from race or ethnicity, just what it means to be a woman in the cultural context I was raised in. So take a moment to just see this collective conditioning Again, you are not your conditioning. Notice that you are aware of your conditioning. Notice that you're aware. Bring the attention into the open arms of awareness. Let the attention sink into the embrace of expansive, open awareness. So many aspects of our conditioning coming and going, rising, falling. This awareness, unchanging. Ever present. Inherently whole. Inherently, one in this moment, let go of any. Temptation to discipline the mind, to clear the mind, to fiddle with the mind in any form Notice that awareness is inherently aware without needing the mind to do anything other than what it's doing in this very moment. You don't need to try to become more peaceful. You can rest in peace as peace. You know, I have to try to be more loving. You can rest in love as love. Give yourself permission, not just to have the very thing you long for, but to be the very thing you long for. Your being is enough. Your being is everything.
0: all of your attention
1: to the breath and let yourself take three of the longest and deepest inhalations and exhalations you've taken yet today. Really feeling your breath move fully and freely throughout your entire body. Just being, I'm just breathing.
0: Thank you, Meryl. Thank you, Caverly. What a gift this conversation and this practice were. Thank you so much. Tell listeners where we can find you, where we can find your new book, and learn about your upcoming creation that you are working on. Thank you, Meryl. So caverlymorgan.org is pretty easy to
1: find. I feel grateful that my mom named me Caverly. I don't think there are a whole lot of other Caverly Morgans out there, um, at least that I've met. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, the book is The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together. I love the cover. I feel so lucky that I got the designer I got. It's just so beautiful. And I know there are a lot of Parents, including you, listening to this podcast, so I can't help giving a shout out about a kid's book about mindfulness, which was my first book, that I uh, that brings uh, practice not just to a direct experience of how to be mindful, but to a direct experience of inquiry: how to ask the questions like, "Who am I? Who am I really?" Mm. So The Heart of Who We Are is it launches, as you know, on November 29th. And on that landing page of my website, you can find out about this book collective that I acknowledged uh, will be happening in 2023. And right now, folks can sign up for to just receive more information as we um, solidify the details around this book
0: collective, not to be confused with the book club. <laughs> <laughs> I am in a book club, and I look <laughs> forward to being part of a book collective. Okay, do you knit? That's what I, I need to. I, I don't knit. I was. It was so funny as you were talking about your like stereotype. I was like, "Well, ours is solely based on food. We're like, what's the spread? <laughs> what are That's we great. eating?" <laughs> That's great. That's great. But yes, it is a lovely, lovely group. I'm glad to be part of it, and it. I love the uh, invitation to expand something that I think most of us can at least resonate with some idea of a book club into something yeah. that is a little bit deeper mm-hmm. and, and wider too. I'm going to say deeper and wider. That's what I feel when yeah. I think about what that might be. Um, so listeners, all of the links will be in the show notes for you. Thank you again, Kaverly, what a joy this conversation was.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. It was a joy for me too, Meryl. I appreciate you and what you do. Thank
0: you. Thanks again. I'll see you next week.